Amen. Amen. Take your seats if you can. Good morning. What an incredible day to be here. I've, I've loved the weekend so far and uh, have just absolutely enjoyed being here. I haven't been here for a couple of years, I think around 15 years, and uh, I keep teasing Mark that I'm on the 15-year cycle, so my goal for this morning is not to mess it up that badly that I have to wait another 15 years to get back with you. Maybe we can get it down to like once a decade or, or something like that. That'll be great. So uh, turn with your Bibles real quick. We're going to spend this morning, what time do we finish, Michael? 11. Okay. 11 this morning, right? Okay. Back home, they tease me. They say, TK, you preach for the calendar, not for the clock. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. We're just going to start here real quick, and then we're going to get into Luke 15, see how far we get. Fortunately, we have tonight, so if we don't finish this morning, we'll pick it up tonight. Uh, What did I say? It's great. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Well, what a beautiful word. Hey, remind. What a beautiful word. You know, in, in, in business, we have CEOs, chief executive officers. We have CFOs, chief financial officers. We have COO, chief operational officers. But I tell you now, in the church, we need some CROs, chief reminding officers. We need guys that will come and hold the truth and hold the line and remind us all the time of the goodness and the grace and the mercy of God and the gospel that he enacted through his son. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have received in vain, believed in vain. For what I received, this is important, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And I tell you what, friends, that's where the church in the West gets in trouble when we make what God has made first, second or third or fourth, or sometimes eighth, ninth, tenth. We have to understand this, that Paul, when Paul writes to the church, he writes, I want to pass this on to you, I want to remind you and pass it on to you as a matter of first importance, primary importance. And he goes on to explain the gospel. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. He appeared to Peter and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as the one that is abnormally born. Here we've got some cool animals in Africa there are some of you here from South Africa and, and Africa, but uh, one of the coolest animals for me is the, is the zebra. Do you say that here or do you say it like in America, zebra? 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 It's the same thing, right? I just want to make sure you get in the picture. But uh, people always, you know, they they like, what are those stripes about on the zebra? And people go, it's camouflage. And I want to tell you, as somebody that grew up hunting with my father throughout Africa, I want to tell you now, it's not camouflage. <laughs> a zebra stands out in the bush like a sore thumb. You get in the, in the plains of Africa, you can see a zebra for miles. It's, it's not about that. 
So each zebra skin is individual, like our fingerprints. Each and every single one of them, genetically coded to be completely different. So that, that's an amazing truth. You know, we talk about God the creator as if he stopped creating after seven days. God is the creator. He's still creating. All our fingerprints are still different. All our DNA is still different. Every snowflake is still different. Every leaf is still different. And every zebra is still different. God is still creating. Bugs me sometimes when Christians who are supposed to be in this incredible relationship with a creator become some of the most boring people on the planet. I'm telling you there's something wrong. See, that went down like a submarine with a screen door. I'm telling you now. All right, so uh, what was our, oh, zebras. So this is what happens. This is what happens with the zebra. When a lion chases the zebra, when, when a lion runs onto a herd of zebras, the same genetic code that's in those zebras teaches a zebra is in them by DNA, and they run just like their, their stripes are random. They run in random patterns. This is, this is unbelievable stuff. This is their defense mechanism, not camouflage. And so what happens is the lion chases this zebra and another zebra comes running across and he switches and he chases that zebra. And another zebra comes this way and he chases that zebra. And sooner or later, all the zebras have run away and the lion is sitting there exhausted. That's what happens to a church when it gets distracted. We run after this thing and we run after that thing and we run after this thing and sooner or later we have forgotten the primary importance that God put us here and that's to see lost people come to salvation. Dead people be made live in Christ. Are you doing all right this morning? See, here we go, Luke 15. Luke 15 is an incredible chapter. Genesis 22 is the gospel in advance. Luke 15 is the gospel in a nutshell. So if you've got time, go and study those two chapters of Scripture. Read all of Scripture, but those two Scriptures will teach us some amazing things. Charles Dickens, we're going to get to the story of the prodigal son. We're going to read the whole chapter. Charles Dickens says the story of the prodigal son. He wrote the amazing book, A Tale of Two Cities, uh, Charles Dickens says the story of the prodigal son is the greatest story ever told. Rembrandt painted about it. Rembrandt painted it in the last years of his life. Uh, historians tell us within two years of his passing, he painted uh, one of his most famous paintings called The Return of the Prodigal. There it is up there. So can you leave that up there? Is that okay? Thank you. Okay, so here we go. We're going to read the whole chapter because there's a, there's a deep truth here for us. Uh, Luke 15. If you haven't found it by now, stop looking. You never will. Okay, now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. 
Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything he had, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out, the citizen of that country, who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spend? Here I am starving to death. I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the oldest son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What an incredibly weighted chapter of Scripture. I have to be so disciplined when I read that thing because every word of that text is weighted. But I want to say this to you. As somebody that, that leans evangelistically, I, I, I used to read this chapter, particularly the one with the prodigal son, particularly the story with the prodigal son, and I used to think this is an amazing chapter to read to people that are, that are lost, for pe- to people that are wanting to find God, it's there, and, and I guess it does. It has some implication to it. But, but, but I want to say this. The Lord showed me something a number of years ago. And we see it here in verse 2. So we go back to verse 1. It says this, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him. Right? So there's two groups of people. You need to just picture this real quick. There's two groups of people that we're going to see here. And it's the tax collectors and the sinners, let's say, over here, right? And that's who Jesus is with. And there's another group of people, the Bible tells us over here, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered and said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them, Now, the commentators and the theologians tell us that when that word says them, Jesus changes groups. So he's talking over here to the tax collectors and the sinners, and he hears these guys muttering behind him, Jesus, why are you hanging out with those stinky, puffy people? 
And he hears them muttering, and he turns, and he tells them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, this parable. Now, R.T. Kendall says this, a parable is a simple story that conveys a powerful truth. Now, when, when it says there, Jesus turns and tells them this parable, we've broken that thing up, and we've made it the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son. But I want to say this to you, those page breaks, those chapter breaks and paragraph breaks are put in there by man. Scripture is divine. Every scripture God breathed, all of it good for teaching, rebuking, etc. But those page breaks are put in. And so we've got to understand carefully what R.T. Kendall said, a parable is a, is a simple story with a profound truth. And so here comes a simple story a simple singular parable, a simple single story told in three parts. Are you doing okay? So he tells them this parable, and he's talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and that has to switch our focus and understand that there's a dual application to this text, that we can say, yes, it does have application for lost people. It does have application for people to, to, to try and come to Christ. But it has a different application for the church. Are you doing okay? He tells them. He tells organized religion. The Pharisees, those people who thought they were good enough. And that's their point. They were like, why are you hanging out with those people? We have been righteous. We've obeyed. We've done this. We've done that. We are the ones who teach the law. And you're hanging out over there. Why aren't you hanging out with us? And Jesus turns and he tells them this parable. Let me tell you about a man who had a hundred sheep. And he lost the sheep. He leaves the 99 and he goes back. And he can read in their faces. They're not getting it. So he goes, let me tell you about a woman who lost a coin. Let me tell you about a woman who lost a coin. He says, she went home and swept the house. And now he's honing in on this pharisaical attitude. He's honing in on this pharisaical attitude because it doesn't say where the woman lost the coin, but it says she went home and swept the house. And he's trying to say to these Pharisees, do you understand you can be in the house and be lost? And then he says, let me tell you about a man who had two sons. And the younger son in this context, the older son becomes more important to us. The younger son was lost because of rebellion. And the older son was just as lost because of self-righteousness. And so when you see the pattern of this chapter, you can see this is honing in on the church. And it's honing in on an attitude that the church can have. But remember, it's a single story. It's a parable with a powerful truth. And I want to illustrate that truth real quick. I, I need some money. <laughs> some money, just like a, a note or... It's in the offering basket. Yeah, I'll just bring the... Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. 50. That's cool. I, I thought this... But thank you. Anyway, I'll scratch me. Okay, listen. Oh, you can't see me. I like to walk around when I preach, man. I preached in Australia one time, and I, they said it was going to be on TV, so they, put a, they had a little thing of tape, and they said, you've got to stay in that square. I'm like, good luck. <laughs> so I'm sure, I don't know what. 
All right, so, so here's the truth. Listen, this is important. Just stop writing, stop doing whatever you're doing. Just watch this. This, this, is, the, this is the truth, the simple truth of this story told in three parts, right? A lost sheep, a lost coin, two lost sons. Yeah? This is the simple truth. The truth that Jesus is trying to say is this. How much is this? 50. 50 Canadian dollars, right? When it was in her purse, how much was it worth? Now, this is not math, right? <laughs> I got in the ministry because they said there would be no math involved, so it's, I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to do addition. So when it was in her purse, how much was it worth? When it's in my hand, how much is it worth? Okay, now listen very carefully. I, listen, this is beautiful money. When I, I normally crumple up the American money, but I'm not going to do it to this. It's too beautiful. Okay, in her purse, 50. In my hand, 50. And if it's... If it's lost, how much is it worth? That's the truth that Jesus is trying to get to the church. That because something is out of position or lost, its value does not diminish before God. That's the point. That's the point. And he's trying to say to the Pharisees, you think I shouldn't be with you because of your self-righteousness. You think you are worth 50 and you think those people over there are not. And in the economy of God, that is simply not true. And I want to tell you now, friends, if we think, he wanted to take it, did you see that? He reached out for it, like he gave it to me. I tell you what, friends, just hear me now, and I'm, I'm going to try and say this as gently as I can, right? This is my gentle face. I'm not mad with anybody. I just look like this. Let me tell you, friends, if we think God values us more because we are seated on the front row or we lead worship or we preach or we lead or we do something, if we think God values us more than some person that woke up with a needle in, a, in his arm, in his or her arm this morning, we are pharisaical in our attitude and we do not understand the economy of grace that Jesus brought to this earth. It's the truth that the church needs to hear, friends. That's that switch. That's that thing that chief reminding officers need to bring to us. That's the switch that will cause us to make the gospel of first importance again. That's the single truth. This whole long parable, all of these stories, and all this interweaving, simply to say this, if something is lost or out of position, it is not devalued in the economy of grace. If a person is lost or out of position, they are not devalued in the economy of grace. How many of you have a prodigal out there now? Somebody you're waiting for, you're trusting God for. Put your hands up. You're trusting God for somebody to get saved. This person might be a friend, might be a family member, might be in this nation or across the world. It doesn't matter. Put your hand up. Look at that. Jesus loves those people. Listen, I'm convinced of this. I'm committed. I'm committed to my family. I want to tell you this. God is more committed to my family than I would ever be. 
I'm committed to my wife. Jesus is more committed to my wife than I would ever be. I love my boys. Not a single thing in the world I wouldn't do for them. God is more so. That unbeliever that you are trusting for, that person that you are waiting for, God is more committed to seeing them come to a saving knowledge of his grace than you are. When we are asking God and when we're praying and we're trusting God and we're trying to step in and we're trying to witness, God is more in that than we will ever be. We're not fighting God to see people get saved. When we read the scripture, he values them, he loves them. We're not fighting God to see this guy get saved. We're partnering with God. I'm convinced of this. I got saved at 25. I shared a little bit of my testimony last night. I got saved at 25. I'm convinced of this. There was not one. Listen to me carefully. I'm not trying to be humble. I'm just being absolutely honest. When I got saved at the age of 25, there was not one single redeemable quality about me. There wasn't one thing. I wasn't kind. I wasn't nice. I wasn't good. I wasn't pleasant to be around. There was not a single redeemable quality about me. And I wasn't looking for God. God was looking for me. God poured out his love and his mercy and his grace on my life while I was a happy sinner, while I loved my sin, while I was making money off my sin. I wasn't looking to change my lifestyle. But in that place, God found me, blessed me, poured out his spirit on me. How, how can we ever understand those things if we don't understand this? When somebody is out of position, their value is not changed before God. Are you doing all right this morning? I need to move on here a little bit. So the younger son does this. We're just going to try and hone in a little bit here and see if we can find a place to land. The younger son says this. He says, give me my share of the inheritance. Give me my share. Now, we, we understand this, that when he says that, when you get your inheritance from your father, I got mine eight years ago when my dad went to be with the Lord. That's when you get your inheritance, when your father dies. And so for the younger son to say to his father, give me my inheritance, he's saying this, I cannot wait for you to die. I wish you were dead. I don't want you I just want your blessing. There's a lot of believers that live like that, right? I actually don't want a relationship with God. I just want God to bless me. But Jesus is Lord and Savior. Lord and Savior. He says that to the, Pharisees, to, the, to the disciples. He says, you call me Lord and Savior, and that's good because that is who I am. Lord and Savior. So just bless me, Lord, but don't tell me what to do. Just bless me, Lord, but don't speak to me about my sexuality. Just bless me, Lord, but don't interrupt my financial plan for my life. Just bless me, Lord. Give me, give me, give me. And it's interesting how his language, you see, this stuff is so hard for me to stay focused on. It's interesting how his language changes because he changes from give me. When he comes back, he says, make me. Gee, what a different attitude towards our heavenly father. Instead of give me, give me, give me, make me like one of your sons. So, it's so hard for me to stay focused on what I'm preaching in this chapter. Okay, so he says, give me my inheritance. And then he takes that money, the, the, the father out of his heart, he blesses and he gives the son, and the son takes that money and he goes and lives in a distant country 
The spiritual implication there is now he's going to go, he's got what he wants from the father, and now he's going to go and live as if he doesn't have a father. Free from his father's influence, free from his father's words and instruction. But there was a famine in that land. And he began to be in need. Funny how that works. When we're not walking with God, we'll always find ourselves in a hollow place. And so here he is, he's off in this foreign land, and he begins to be in need. And, and I, I, I love the language here because it's absolutely amazing. It says, verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses. Isn't that brilliant language? It's like he has this, duh. It's like this, duh, moment. Right? I had all of this stuff with my father. Now I asked my father to bless me. I went off and I completely blew it. I've completely thrashed his inheritance. Listen, this is a big deal in those days. It's a very, very big deal. This is a little while before the dot-com revolution, right? The, these guys took generations to build wealth. They didn't make money with a few clicks of a mouse. And he's wasted it. He's blown it. Can you imagine the shame? Can you imagine the embarrassment? But remember this, I wish you were dead. I want to live as if I don't have a father. And he gets to this place and now he begins to be in need. And he says this, he says, I'm going to go back to my father. Isn't that brilliant? And so this is his duh moment. This is the duh. That relationship can be distorted. It can be twisted. It can be tarnished. It can be all kinds of things, but it can never be destroyed. That's why he has this moment. Duh. I want to go back to my dad. There's ownership there. My father. Like when, the, when David writes and he says, the Lord is my shepherd. That's different from saying the Lord is a shepherd. Are you doing all right? So I am a father to some boys. I'm not a father to every boy. My boys would say, my father. I, I love that language in, in, in Spanish. They put two words together. Me, my, hijo, son. Me, hijo. And they make it one word, mijo. It's beautiful. Daughter, me, hija, mija. My daughter. It speaks of ownership. There's something there. The Lord is my shepherd. God is my father. When you pray, pray like this. Our father. Listen, man, listen, this is good news. I know I don't preach it real good, but it's good news. And so he has this dull moment, and now he's going back to his dad. And so he's on his way back to his dad, and he's, and he's rehearsing and nursing the speech. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Make me like one of your hired men. Now, that's what we're going to cover tonight, is that little portion of make me like one of your hired men. It's called the flawed return policy. You all got Costco here, right? We, we have Costco. People shop at Costco in America. People in America take stuff back to Costco they never bought at Costco. That's how good their return policy is. We love a good return policy. The son's return policy is flawed, and I'm going to show you that tonight. Okay, so he's, so, he's, so he's making this speech. He's prepared to make this speech. And he goes, Dad, I'm going to come back and I'm going to say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And, and, and I'm going to ask, Dad, just make me like one of your hired men. 
I don't know how many of you have had that. You did something naughty when you were a kid and your mom tells you, wait till your father gets home. Man, you spent hours preparing that speech, right? You spent hours preparing that speech. I'm gonna say this, I'm gonna say this. My dad's gonna, you know? And I, 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 I you know, I, I, I told guys, I mean, my, my dad was a complete savage for 70 years of his life. He was a brutal, violent man for 70 years of his life until he responded to the gospel. Still the most radical testimony I've ever seen or heard. And when I was about 14 years old, I borrowed my dad's truck. And you, you understand you only get your driver's license in South Africa when you're 18, right? So I'm 14, and I'm across the other side of town visiting a girl, and I suddenly realize my dad's going to be home before I get home. This clearly is going to be a problem. And so I take off on this truck, and we used to live down this steep hill like this, and then our driveway went here, and it was, it was a walled driveway. Like, so we went down here, and there was the gate. This was our yard. This was the neighbor's yard, right, on the other side of this wall. And so I come down this steep hill. I'm racing, hoping against hope that I can get home before my father. And as I come down this hill and I snatch a gear, that pickup truck turns sideways like this. I correct it, but I'm still going too fast to get in the driveway, and it snaps sideways again. And when it snaps straight, it went straight through that second concrete wall. And it high-pointed on their rock garden in the middle of their garden. So things like this on the garden. I'm trying to snatch reverse. I can't snatch reverse. And I look out of the driver's window through the hole in the wall to, the back, to my back door, the back door of my house. And the first person that comes out the back door of my house is my father. I had no time to make a speech. No time to prepare a speech. How many of you have seen the All Blacks play rugby? You've seen the All Blacks do the haka. That's what my father looked like coming out of that door, like this. I'm like this, I survived the crash. I'm going to die at the hands of my father. My dad, and I've got no time to make no speech. This son, I mean, he walked home. He had hours to make the speech. But just the grace of God, he gets to his father and he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. And if you look at where he practices his speech and where he actually does his speech, it's completely different. The father doesn't let him complete. The father runs to him and races to him. That's what that word means. He raced to him. And it says he kissed him. Poor translation. He kissed him again and again and again. So he runs to his son. My son. And the son starts his speech, Father, I'm so sorry, I've sinned against you. And he's like, shh, 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 my boy. And then he turns to his servants and he goes, quick. I love that word, quick. So let's look at that painting real quick. So there's the father, right? Leaning over the son. The son has come home in slave clothes. Can you see that? The son has come home in slave clothes. The older brother standing on a step, Right? Elevated. I'm so much better than this. It's a pharisaical attitude, right? I'm so much better than you. I've walked with the Lord so many years. I know what I'm doing. I've stayed here. You went and wasted. Note that the father never mentioned the son's sin, and the father never allowed the son to mention his sin. Only the older brother named his sin. Hey, hey, listen, here's a deep truth. 
You get a puppy to stop peeing on the carpet by rubbing his nose in it. You don't get sinners to stop sinning by rubbing their nose in it. You get sinners to stop sinning by pointing to the love and the mercy and the grace of God. The Bible says it's the goodness of God. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But the older brother does that. He wasted your money with prostitutes. It's funny that there's no indication of that, right? And so you wonder if the older brother didn't actually pay money to have the younger brother investigated so that if this happened, he knew he could say, you, you, you. The son comes home in slave clothes. The father's leaning over him. The father leans over him and he's yelling at his servants, quick, quick, put a ring on his finger. The ring speaks in those days of spiritual authority, but it was also like a credit card. It had a stamp on it, and so he could go to town and buy things and make the impression of his ring, and his dad would have to pay for it. Are you kidding me? This is the kid that wasted half your inheritance. You will never recover from this in those days. You will never, impossible, make that money back up. And the first thing you're going to give him when he comes home is a credit card. But you see, there's a truth here, friends. As much, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight, as much as he wanted to come home as a servant, there are no servants in the household of God waiting to be made sons. When we come home, we come home as sons or daughters. And in that instant, we have full rights and full access of our heavenly household. We don't have to earn it back. We don't have to crawl. We don't have to make it back. So he gives him the ring. Gives him the ring. And he says, put a robe on him. He looks like a slave. He wants one of those bright red robes. He, he, he wants to put this robe on him. And the spiritual implication there is, my son looks like a slave. Make him like my son again. I can't stand. Quick, bring the robe, put it on him. Make him like my son again. Get those slave clothes off him and make him look like he's part of this household again. And he puts sandals on his feet. Slaves went barefoot, sons wore shoes. What an absolutely incredible picture of the love and the mercy and the grace of God and how when we come home, we are transported instantly into this relationship of sonship or daughterhood with a heavenly father who loves us and will withhold nothing from us. Genesis 22, like I said, the gospel in advance, God speaks to Abraham and he says, because you have not withheld... What was the test for Abraham? Sacrifice Isaac, right? There's so many parallels there. Can't go there. Because you have not withheld your son. Language is so paralleled. He says, take your son, whom you love. In the Gospels, it's God himself. This is my son, whom I love. So paralleled. And then he says, because you have not withheld. And, and heaven's open over Abraham from that point on. Let me ask you this, friends. What did God withhold from us? Absolutely nothing. He gave his most precious commodity, his most precious relationship, his most precious gift of his son who came to the earth sinless, walked this earth fully God and fully man. 
tempted, never sinned, went to the cross on our behalf. What has God withheld from us? That's that story. The son comes home and the father withholds nothing. He has the ring, he has the credit card, he has the identity, and he has the favor. God the Father speaks over Jesus. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You know, Jesus hasn't done anything yet, right? He hasn't done a single thing yet. Just come out of the Jordan. He hasn't done a single thing. He hasn't preached the sermon, hasn't healed the sick, hasn't raised the dead, hasn't irritated the Pharisees yet. That's my personal favorite. I'll get on a jet to go irritate a Pharisee. I'll pay my own way to go irritate a Pharisee. It's my personal favorite. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. And God the Father speaks over him. This is my son, identity, whom I love, affection. With him I am well pleased, favor. Can you see the parallels? I want to tell you, friends, that's what we have with our Heavenly Father. God wants to speak that over every single one of us every day. This is my son. This is my daughter, whom I love. God loves us. With him, I am well pleased. With her, I am well pleased. We have the favor of God, and we don't have to do a single thing to deserve it. Because Jesus ensured that we deserve it. Are you doing okay this morning, friends? This is good news. This is good news. I, I, I want to tell you, man, the good news gets gooder and gooder. It, it really does. When I got saved, I thought I had an understanding of the gospel. But they say this about the gospel. It's so shallow that a child can play in it, but it's so deep that an elephant can drown in it. And that's why we need this thing. We need chief reminding officers. We need people to bring us back again and again and again to the goodness and the love and the mercy and the grace of God. So that in that place, we can come to an understanding that I did nothing to deserve this, not one redeemable quality, and yet God poured out His life his grace, His love, His mercy on my life so that not just to me, but through me, we can see more sons and daughters come to a living, loving relationship with their Heavenly Father. That's the point. If we go to the seaplane terminal, is that a thing? Terminal? We go to the seaplane terminal, there's no seaplanes coming in and out. We'd like, there's a problem. If you go to the ferry terminal, there's no ferries coming in and out. We'd go, there's a problem. There's a terminal here, no people coming in and out. You go to... Uh, Vancouver International, no planes. You'd say there's a problem. Yet somehow, sometimes we can get in this place in a church where nobody's getting saved. Nobody's reaching out. We've lost the value for those people around us. We've become a church of mirrors. This is a danger for the church that I lead in, in Denver, Colorado. We've got some cool things happening. We've got some cool things happening. We've had some key, key worship leaders come to preach in our church and weep through our worship. Never seen worship like this. We've got some cool things happening. We've got young people that are, that are firing through the ranks. Our frontline worship leader is 20 years old. The kid behind him is 15, leading worship for us on a Sunday morning. We've got some cool things happening. And you know what? We could get stuck there. Look how cool we are. Self-congratulatory. I quit school when I was 14, man. Y'all need to stay in school, otherwise you're going to end up like me. But, but we can be so patting ourselves on the back. Look how good we are. Look how cool we are. 
And all the while, there are lost, hurt, broken people streaming past our building that we don't see because we're looking at ourselves. We need to quit being a church of mirrors and start being a church of windows where we can look outside of the church, where we can look outside of our lives and see the lostness and the hurtness and the brokenness of this world. And understand this, that that person, as lost as he is, as broken as he is, as smelly as he is, as stinky as he is, as, as evil as he is, as bad as he is, he is not devalued in the economy of grace that Jesus ushered in on the cross. I'm not sure how we do this and just stay the same. I'm not sure how we do this and just look at lost people like, ah, maybe. You know, my sister prayed for me for 10 years. My sister got saved when I was 15, right when I went off the deep end. Was it five tall? My sister got saved right when I went off the deep end. 15 to 25, my sister prayed for me and witnessed to me and would come and tell me, Terry, I'm praying for you. I was racing motorcycles in those days, road racing. And my sister would come before a big race and say, Terry, I'm praying for you. And I, would, I was so mean to her, I was so hurtful. I was like, are you dumb? Seriously, are you dumb? This is a piece of machinery. It doesn't have a mother, it doesn't have a father. It's not going to heaven or hell. It goes where I point it. That's not always true on a motorcycle. You understand that? And I've got the scars to prove it. But man, I was so mean-spirited to her. But she was a person who understood this grace that said as, as icky as this kid is, as mean as he is, my brother-in-law came to me and, because I was so hurtful to my sister and said to me, your sister is dead to you. Stay away from your sister. I'm trying. She keeps showing up here to lay hands on me and pray for me. I'm trying to stay away from her. I'm so glad she didn't quit after eight years. Eight and a half. Nine. Nine and a half. I'm so glad she didn't quit. So glad she understood the economy of grace. That while there was not one single redeemable quality about her little brother, not one single redeemable quality. While I wasn't looking for God, while I was running for God, while I was mocking her and mocking God. In that place, God poured out his love and his mercy and his grace on me. And my life changed in that moment. You're doing all right? Let's stand together. I want to pray for you. I want to just say to you real quick. I love that, that line where the son comes to his senses and he says this, I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to go back to my father. He'd asked his father for his inheritance. 
he basically told his father, I wish you were dead. Can't wait for you to die. And he'd gone off and lived in a distant country as if he had no, no father. I want to tell you, that was me as an unbeliever. Didn't want to know that I had a heavenly father. Shared my testimony last night. Didn't want to know I had an earthly father either. Didn't speak to my earthly father for 10 years. But I love that revelation. That that, re- that that relationship can be distorted or tarnished or twisted, but it can never be destroyed. And I want to say that to you here this morning, friends. If you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't have a relationship with my Heavenly Father. I've blown it too badly. No, you have not. No, you have not. I don't know if my Father will ever accept me. And if my heavenly father would ever have me back, I can promise you he will. You can have that moment right now of identity and affection and favor. Right now. Jesus has done it all. I've traveled in India and China and seen religion where they have to earn their way back. They have to earn their way into pleasing, appeasing an angry God. I want to tell you this, friends. Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day to prove that the sacrifice was sufficient and that the wrath of God has been fully satisfied. Now, that's good news, friends. The wrath of God has been fully satisfied. Jesus will never be angry with us. God the Father will never be angry with us. The wrath of God was poured out, satisfied in Jesus Christ. If that's you here this morning, I'd love to pray for you. You just say, man, I just want to come home. I just want to come home to my Heavenly Father. I want to have that moment when my Heavenly Father wraps His arms around me and says, quick, quick. Put a ring in His finger. Put the robe over Him. Put sandals on His feet. If that's you this morning, won't you raise your hand? I just want to pray for you real quick. I'll pray for you right where you stand. I don't need to call you up. I won't embarrass you. But there's a moment here for you, friends just to say, I want to be returned to my heavenly Father. Thank you, sir. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Is there anybody else? I don't want to prolong it. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Father, you know the sons and daughters in this room that you are calling home. You know the sons and daughters that you've been waiting for to come home so that you can run to them and kiss them again and again and again. You know, Lord. You know. Father, for those people that raise their hands, Would you pour out your love and your mercy and your grace? Would you show them, Lord, how much you value them and how much you love them and how much you want them home as sons and daughters? Thank you, my God. Thank you, my Father. Thank you, my God. For those of you that raised your hands earlier that said, yes, I I know somebody that needs to have that duh moment. I need somebody that needs to understand that revelation of how good their heavenly father is. If you raised your hand earlier and you want to be trusting God for that person right now, raise your hands again. We want to pray for you again. 
Thank you, my God. Thank you, Father. Father, we see those hands raised as an attitude of surrender to you, to your will, to your purposes, to your goodness, to your mercy, to your grace, Father. Now ask, Father, would you anoint these men and women for the task, Lord? Would you anoint them to show the goodness and the kindness and the love and the mercy and the grace of God to those people that they trust in to come to a loving relationship with their Heavenly Father? Would you do it now, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, would you anoint them for the task? Would you anoint them for the task, we pray, Lord? Would you show them, Father, that you, those people are not devalued because they're out of position? In fact, you love them, Lord. The lost sheep speaks of great effort. The lost coin speaks of great value. And the lost son speaks of great love. And you, there is no effort that you will not go to because you value these people so much. You will pour out your great love on them, Father. We partner with you. We partner with you, Lord, praying and asking. Just name that person by name. Just quietly under your breath, just name them by name. Just say, I call before their heavenly Father right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. May we see a great harvest in these last days, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you.